Welcome back to Behind the Play. My name is Alex Adams, and today we're joined by Scott Wheeler of The Athletic to enlighten us a little bit about the NHL draft and his career. Uh, thanks so much, Scott, for taking the time and coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, man. I first want to ask a little bit about your career. When did you first think you might want to pursue a career in sports journalism? Really, uh, I was one of those kids who just kind of knew even in high school that this was sort of what I wanted to do. I wasn't waffling on it into, I know a lot of kids have that that indecision, right? Of, oh God, I've got to apply to universities. What do I want to do? Uh, I, I kind of knew like grade nine, grade 10, that when that came around and it was time to apply that I was, I, this was the career path that I wanted to be on. Uh, obviously the prospect side of it and, and my current beat and what I do for a living now, that wasn't maybe how I, exactly how I imagined it. Um, but certainly just knew I wanted to to cover sports and, and be a sports journalist. And that was kind of my passion. I was always sort of that kid who was a good writer, a natural writer. It was, even when I was a little kid, my teacher, my little, fourth fifth grade teachers used to always say you're a good writer keep keep at it kind of thing uh and as as tends to happen with journalists was uh good in math but not interested in it and uh certainly not not the the sciences science and biology and chemistry once you started diving into that in high school just wasn't uh wasn't my cup of tea so uh took a lot of business and law i was at a high school in aurora here uh just north of toronto where you could take actually some pretty specialized courses in mm. terms of business and law and creative writing and all that and i kind of always knew that 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 was uh that was my passion i actually minor ended up minoring in law at carlton uh mm. when i attended there for journalism school as well so uh those were kind of my two uh law and then writing were kind of my two passions and and with that, maybe tell us a bit of your journey from, I guess, going from Carleton to where you are now at the Athletic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Carl. I mean, as as you know, and as I think everybody sort of in this neck of the woods knows, the the two big journalism schools are Carleton and Ryerson, right? So uh, applied to both of them. Certainly, there's excellent programs at Concordia and uh, at Western and Centennial here in the city. Um, uh, but really sort of knew I was going to go likely one of Ryerson or Carleton and chose Carleton just because of the more of an academic stream. Ryerson was always sort of told to me, even by the faculty at Ryerson when I visited, that it was more sort of practical hands-on. You're going to jump right in in first year to doing journalism. And I knew at Carleton that I still, I was always uh, fascinated with just learning. Like I was okay. always one of those kids that yeah. enjoyed studying, enjoyed sort of academics and I knew I w- I felt like I would get more of that at Carleton just because the first two years at Carleton you don't actually take a ton of journalism classes mm-hmm. you kind of take your your 101 classes and that kind of a thing but it's really third and fourth year where you get into more specific classes radio print uh, digital all of that so um yeah wanted to sort of cut my teeth wanted to take law classes and minor in law and just wanted to go about it that way and also wasn't the worst thing in the world as a Toronto kid to get out of the city as well. I wanted to, I, I was drawn to Ottawa just as a new place to live and Carleton's campus felt a lot different than Ryerson's campus. Yep. Ryerson's in the city and Carleton's kind of its own little enclosed campus, which I really uh, enjoyed and thought that would be a good experience for university and that kind of thing. So all sorts of factors sort of led me out there. And then uh, once I was out there, sort of the natural thing for me in terms of doing sports journalism, I wanted to do that while I was in school. I didn't want to just sort of take my classes. I wanted to get as much experience as I could. And 
the easiest way to get access to cover games, to tell stories, to freelance was to do it not through the senators. And I did a little bit of that. I covered the Sens uh, a little bit, but the, the better way was, was junior hockey because okay. 10 minutes away from where I lived, you had the Ottawa 67s and 10 minutes past that you had the Gatineau Peaks. So yeah. I just had access to not only the OHL, but the QMJHL and just covering that side of the sport became a natural entry point. You're also off uh, during the holidays, which meant covering the World Juniors was a potential opportunity for me when I was on breaks from school and all of that. So really sort of dove into the covering covering the World Juniors, covering Hockey Canada, covering the OHL and the QMJHL, freelancing stories wherever I could. Uh, and while there, I also um, uh, sort of ran a Leafs blog called Pension Plan Puppets, which was a part of mm -hmm. SB Nation. Uh, and through that, got to cover cover the Winter Classics and the Centennial Classics. They wouldn't credential us for Leafs games, but they would credential us for all of the NHL events. So the NHL draft, the Combine, the Centennial Classic, the Winter Classic. So really got to to cut my teeth, especially during the holidays. I would just come home and, and work and do the huh. World Juniors and do the Centennial Classic when it was in Toronto and that kind of a thing. And uh, got to sort of build relationships with other journalists on the Leafs beat and I uh, did intern, tried to do internships every summer. I did uh, two summers at the PGA tour covering oh, golf cool. uh, for PGA tour.com and sort of traveling around to their events uh, and telling stories for the website. And then did uh, two internships with, with the globe and mail and with uh, the Toronto sun uh, for the globe and mail covering news and for the Toronto sun covering a summer of the Leafs and the Raptors getting destroyed by LeBron in the playoffs. <laughs> and uh, it was that era with, uh, with sort of DeMar DeRozan and Kyle yeah. Lowry. Right. So um, yeah. And covered the blue Jays and Jose mm -hmm. Bautista and Edwin Encarnacion and yeah. Troy Tulowitzki and those guys as well. Right. So I uh, really got to cut my teeth in golf and in other sports. And then at the globe and mail got lucky and got to do news and write stories about wow. the ongoing housing crisis and, <laughs> the legalization of marijuana at the time and all sorts of things that were going around sort of going on in the country. So uh, yeah, it was just uh, I sort of got to, to do a little bit of everything during university and build a portfolio. And then uh, through that, uh, I was actually at the Centennial Classic between the Red Wings and the Leafs at BMO Field in Toronto. I just happened to be assigned the seat next to James Myrtle oh. uh, of The Athletic, who had just left the Globe and Mail where I had been and had joined this new startup company called The Athletic that nobody had ever heard of. And uh, he turned to me, this was January of my fourth year of university, and he turned to me and said, hey, he knew me from doing Leaf stuff with Pension Plan Puppets. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, hey, we're looking for editors. We've got a few writers that we've hired in Toronto, but we need people to edit on the desk at night times. Are you open to doing that while you finish up school? And so for the second half of my fourth year after January, when the Centennial Classic was, that's how I wow. sort of got started at The Athletic. I just worked three nights a week from, I think my shift was like 5 p.m. to midnight, three nights a week while I finished school, just editing stories. And then while I was doing that, I pitched, pitched Myrtle a few stories, uh, probably wrote in those few months, wrote like once or twice a month kind of thing for The mm -hmm. Athletic, just pitching stories. Some of them did really well. And then uh, after I was done school, I did an internship at the Toronto Star. And uh, again, covering news for four months at the Toronto Star, left the athletic to do that. And then once September rolled around and my internship was over and the hockey season was starting back up, they offered me a, a writing position covering the Leafs and the Marlies. And the Leafs and the Marlies eventually became uh, became what I'm doing now, which is 
exclusively prospects. I always sort of loved doing the Marley side of that job. And they knew that I'd done a bunch of sort of prospect stuff in my time at Carleton through scouting services like Future Considerations and McKean Talkie. And then, uh, yeah, that just has spilled into, I I think this is now year six, year seven for me at The Athletic. So it's, uh, I got lucky. I mean, I, I worked for it, but I still just by chance was sitting next to Myrtle, got that job and now have been, uh, been with the company as it's grown and it's grown into this monster now. So, uh, it's been, been a pretty, pretty cool, uh, pretty cool experience in the six or seven years since I graduated. And with that, what, what drew you to, to writing about prospects? Like, what do you love about uh, doing that? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think there are a few things. A, uh, for the type of journalism that I do, I I love uh, sort of immersive storytelling. I love sort of access-driven uh, sports journalism. I've done a lot of that work at The Athletic, and it's just much easier to do that with junior teams and with mm-hmm. players before they've entered into the NHL, where you don't have to go through the, the sort of PR nightmare that can exist in the NHL in terms of getting access to these guys and you have to compete with much fewer people. So the big thing was just access covering junior hockey allowed me to get to know players. It allowed me to build relationships with coaches and agents of those players and the managers of those players and the strength and conditioning coaches of those players and all of that. Uh, and through that, uh, I think you also learn when you're speaking with those kids. One of the things that I love about it is that they're not they're not jaded. They haven't answered these questions before. Yeah. They this you're learning new things about them, or you're introducing readers to things about them that are new to the reader. Uh, there, there's only so much you can ask Sidney Crosby today, right? Mm-hmm. He's 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 answered every question. He's probably answered them ten times. Uh, how tired must have he been about talking about his concussions earlier in his career, yeah. right? Like there were just only so many storylines with Sidney Crosby that could humanize him. And with these kids, because they haven't been through that, they haven't spent 10 years talking to the media. They're just, they're just them and their families and the people around them are just so much more eager to yeah. tell their stories and to give you good mm. stuff. And so that is, that's what made me fall in love with it was just, I, I covered the Leafs. I split it with Myrtle and Jonas. We did a sort of three-way split of the travel for a couple of years. And I did a sort of 10, 12 road games a year and all of that. And I just found I was telling worse stories huh. of those teams and those players because it was harder to get one-on-one time with them. It was harder to get good access with them. And in junior, um, obviously early on, I had to fight for that access as well. But now I've established myself enough that, there's value in in them talking to me, uh, so that that's just been the big part of it. It's it's like my own little beat. I get to to own it, and you just can't do that in Toronto when there's 50 journalists in the room trying to cover the leaps every day, right? So uh, that's that's really what I what I loved about it. And then on top of that, there's the player evaluation side of my job, which is a huge passion of mine. I've okay. grown up playing hockey my entire life. I coached my high school hockey team. Um, and I'm just fascinated by the way that the game is played, the players that are playing it, what makes them good, uh, what makes the the successful ones successful. And I get to do on top of the storytelling, I get to do that by covering prospects. And again, there's just a there's a knowledge gap there, right? So I can, everybody knows that what makes Connor McDavid good, um, and everybody knows even what makes Connor Bedard good. But the 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 lesser known players, I get to fill in that gap for people, and you just don't get to do that in the NHL where diehard fans know who the good and bad players are on their teams. Right. So 
I, I like being that, that sort of in between. And with that, what, like when you're assessing a player, what do you look for? What do you think is the most important thing as a talent, talent evaluator for you, Scott? Yeah. I mean, it, coming out of the, the, there were those three lockouts, right? Three lockouts in a 15 year period, right? And coming out of the first two of the three of them, I think everybody believed that because the hooking and holding was going to go away and the game was going to change, that hockey was just going to be a track meet, right? It was just going to be a race up and down the ice and speed was the premium. I think increasingly what we've actually learned about the game is that speed doesn't have the the value that people mm. thought it would. Um, and that the game really slows down inside the offensive zone and inside the offensive zone becomes about problem solving and about making plays and processing the game quickly without necessarily even needing to move all that quickly. Obviously, there are exceptions to that. McDavid, Dylan Larkin, Matt Barzell, the, the great skaters, Nathan McKinnon. Um, but by and large, I think the best players in today's game just know how to operate and how to problem solve on the ice. So it's about reading and reacting. It's about staying one step ahead and planning out plays. It's about moving quickly when you need to, but slowing things down when you need to and settling the game down. Uh, and it's just about those, those sort of small little plays, the small little decisions that happen on the ice, the players that make them really consistently well, the players that execute on sort of small area plays really well. Those are the players who are dominating in the NHL these days. And that yeah. even includes the guys who are really fast when they do it, like the McDavid's. They still make a ton of small area plays. They still process the game. They don't make a ton of mistakes in terms of reads with the puck on their stick. And then for defensemen, I, I think it's a little bit different. Uh, defensemen, certainly skating is still a premium. Uh, the Increasingly, the teams are drafting long, defensemen they saw what happened with the tampa bay lightning and with the vegas golden knights and with the st louis blues where when they were in their each of their heydays it was everybody was six foot two six foot three and could really skate and was long and made things hard with their length and their skating um obviously again there are exceptions to that we're seeing yeah. what lane hudson is doing and what he's going to do in montreal all three of the the Norris Trophy nominees this year are six foot, five foot eleven, and five foot eleven, and Adam Fox, Kale McCarr, and Eric Carlson. So there are there those guys can still take over games, but more and more the the most common defenseman that you see in the NHL is the long guy who can transport the puck and just get it from A to B uh, and let the forwards do the rest kind of thing. So uh, very different for in terms of skills for forwards and defensemen that I look for, but definitely for forwards it's. It's that problem-solving piece, man. It's can you think out there? There are guys, a lot of very talented players, guys who can rip the puck harder than other players, guys who can skate faster than other players, who really struggle with making the adjustment to the NHL and are often drafted too high just because at junior they were faster than everybody else or mm -hmm. bigger and stronger than everybody else or they can shoot it harder than everybody else. Uh, once they get to the NHL, you need you need those other skills, the, the in particular the sort of processing, problem-solving piece uh, to be successful or at least to be more than a sort of depth guy. Yeah. And with that, uh, Corey Pronman, your colleague at the athletic talked on a podcast, I think about a week ago about looking at his scouting and referencing it directly to the playoffs. And you've talked about kind of problem solving mm -hmm. and, and he talked about how the defense, I think of the teams being successful in the playoffs are all the average is like six, three or something. So kind of on your point, but for you, do you look at the playoffs as a marker for you on, how you scout and the players that are successful in the playoffs 
being kind of the marker for what you look for. And he also mentioned compete factor. Is that something else that you look for? Yeah, the the competitiveness piece is always a tricky one for me because I think it's a hard thing to truly know unless you're the coach of that team or unless you're a player on that team. We can watch a guy work really hard out there, but I think in many cases, the guys who are working the hardest are often doing it extremely inefficiently. They're chasing the play. They're bouncing around the ice. They're not actually doing as much as they look like they're doing out there. Um, so that's a, a factor for me. But for that, I, I, I can lean on coaches. At this point, I feel uh, sort of really comfortable with my sources and with the relationships that I built. And I'll, if I'm not sure about a kid and the way that he sort of battles or competes or the tone that he sets, I'll, I'll call their coaches and talk to them and ask for an honest opinion off the record from them that way as well. So uh, you got to marry some of the sort of reporting that I do and some of the, the sort of watching these kids that I do and traveling around to see them play and all that. Um, but yeah, as far as the length goes, I think it's really important. I would add though, that, I mean, Samuel Girard was injured during the playoffs last year, but who were two of the best defensemen on the Colorado avalanche, right? It was five foot 11, Kale McCarr and five foot nine, Sam Girard. Um, so there, you still have to take good in terms of drafting. You still have to draft good players when they're there. Uh, I I think the teams that set the hard and fast boundaries of, we won't draft players under defensemen under six foot two are ultimately going to lose the war they're going to miss some of the lane hudson's and the olin zellwagers and those guys mm-hmm. um and i think olin zellwager and jamie drysdale are going to be two parts of an excellent defense in anaheim and they're both small so um that that's yeah i, I try not to set those firm boundaries in terms of playoff teams look like this right now so that's what we need to build uh, especially because the game's changing. Players are changing. The team that wins the Stanley Cup five years from now is likely going to look a lot different than what San Jose and uh, looked like once upon a time or what LA looked like once upon a time or obviously more recently St. Louis and Colorado and Tampa. Um, so yeah, it's it's a tricky game because you, you want to be sort of au courant. You want to be viewing the game the way that it's currently being played, but you also want to be winning down the line and the game's changing and the players are changing. And I think increasingly we're going to see Olin Zellwagers and Lane Hudson step into the NHL and be really good defensemen. So uh, I don't want to, I wouldn't want to be losing out on those guys either. And with that, I have, I have a question for you because analytics is becoming such a part of the NHL, like a lot of sports. And, and for you, how much do you weigh or take into account analytics when you're projecting players? Because that seems like a hard thing to do. Yeah, it's definitely a part of my job. Uh, some of the uh, uh, sort of leagues in Europe in particular ha- actually have publicly available analytics, a lot like the NHL does. So okay. the SHL, Liga, the Swiss National League, uh, they all publicly track time on ice, which doesn't happen in the NCAA and in the junior leagues over here, unfortunately. And because they track time on ice, they can track things like possession metrics and all of that. Um, so that helps. It's a factor. It's something that I think you'd be foolish not to consider in your evaluations of players. Um, and then there's some good publicly available data and models. People like Byron Bader uh, on Twitter have built actually some pretty successful uh, sort of predictive models for that, that consider only statistics and data for, for sort of evaluating players. So I subscribe to Byron's uh, hockey prospecting and all of that and, and keep up on it. Um, 
And it's, it's huge. Ultimately the guys who put the puck in the net at lower levels are typically the guys who put the puck in at the net at the higher levels. And there are, you've got to be careful to play that game because there are players who will at equal levels sort of produce the same. I, I just finished my sort of guide to scouting, which is a piece that I do every year. And as part of it, I, I sort of walk people through what that can look like. And the example that I use this year in the piece, which is out next week is that Owen Beck, who was drafted in the second round mm-hmm. by the Montreal Canadiens last year, and Cedric Gagnon, who was drafted in the fourth round by the Montreal Canadiens last year, 94 picks later, Gagnon actually produced 59 points in 68 games in the OHL last year, and Owen Beck produced 51 points in 68 huh. games in the OHL last year. So Gagnon was the more productive player in the same league at the same age. And yet, if you watched the pair, you would know, as Montreal did, that Owen Beck was the kid who was going to impress in training camp this year and make the world junior team this year and win an OHL title this year. And even though Gaindon is a good prospect in his own right, uh, the production didn't sort of tell that same story when yeah. you watch the two of them play. So, and, and put them in the context of their teams and who they played with and who they played behind and what line they were on and their power play time and all of that. So as far as the data goes, the data can definitely play tricks on you at lower levels in ways that it doesn't in the NHL because the NHL has such strong parity. The data is pretty, pretty strong uh, in terms of being able to read it and use it Uh, much trickier in the junior and pro levels. I, I tell people this all the time, but the difference between some of the teams in the MHL, which is the Russian Junior League, the teams in the mm-hmm. in places like Moscow and St. Petersburg, and the teams that play in Siberia, the difference in the talent is huge. So mm-hmm. one point for one team and one point for another team yeah. are not equal in any way. Uh, and that's true in, in Sweden, where there are good, good junior teams and bad junior teams. And it's true in the OHL, where there are Memorial Cup contenders and there aren't. So you have to be cognizant of all of that. Uh, there was a kid in this year's draft who I'm a big fan of by the name of Callum Ritchie, who played on an Oshawa Generals team that didn't have any talent around him. And he would have been much more productive if he played on a better OHL team. So you have to consider that when you're considering the data. Uh, but still, the data is a, a huge part of my job. Uh, and I think uh, I, I probably care about it more than more than most people in terms of the final result and uh, the way that my draft sort of skews maybe a little bit closer to production and those types of things. Um, but there's the data is not perfect either. Uh, we do have some uh, private uh, scouting services that I use. One's called Sport Contract and one's called Instat. And they both have excellent private data. Obviously, it's not vetted uh, in the same yep. way that public data is. So you, you have to be careful with it. But uh, I use all of that. And, and it's, it's a big part of my job. And with that, obviously, you and, and Corey... Pronman had a, a recent mock draft of the first two rounds of, of the of uh the this year's draft and and for you I know w- when you're making a mock draft is it based on who you think the best 64 or 60 draft um eligible players are or is it just more based on the team or is it a bit of both and how do you basically make a mock draft yeah mock drafts are very different from the rest of the work I do right my final board which will be out on june 5th uh is strictly my own work it's the time i've put in this year traveling to events traveling to games spending the year on the phone and watching video and learning about these players it is strictly my assessment i have to own it 
The mock draft uh, is definitely more about predicting and my best guess for how things are going to go. And that's through understanding where the prospect pools of each of those teams are at, where their needs are, where they're likely to go. If they've gone to four forwards in the last four first rounds, then they're likely to pick a defenseman in the first round. That's just kind of the way that it goes as things trend. So that's a piece of it. Talking to people around the league about the consensus on these kids to try to build out a consensus. Uh, the consensus is obviously normally much different than my list. Uh, so understanding where the consensus is and who most teams like in certain ranges is important. And then there are a few teams uh, that I'm I'm well connected with and that I know I just know guys that they like. So that helps as well. Um, not obviously not the case for everybody, but uh, it's that you. So you're yeah you're put, kind of playing that game of okay, I know this team likes this guy. I know this team needs this thing, this player or this type. Uh, how How is it likely going to play out? And in the end, if I get 25% of it right, I'm probably winning. So it's yeah. uh, it's it's also very much a, a piece of content, right? It's yeah. uh, I try to tell readers not to take it quite as seriously as the rest of our work just because it's so hard. Yeah. Uh, certainly my last mock draft, I typically do two or three of them. And my last one is something that you should definitely trust, I think. Uh, okay. And it normally happens after the combine where I've been able to gather more info. Uh, but it's a it's a hard game to play for sure. Yeah. And, and with that, obviously, uh, Connor Bedard is most likely or almost for sure going to go to the uh, Chicago Blackhawks. But tell us a little bit about this draft. Um, other than Bedard, like it seems to be lauded as one of the best draft classes in, in a long time. Just tell us about how good this draft class is. Yeah, I mean, this is my kind of my 10th year doing this. I kind of began doing it in university and I'm now seven years out of university. And um, this is the best, outside of 2015, the best group, best group I've scouted. Uh, 2015 was special. I mean, it wasn't just, Connor McDavid and Jack Eichel at the top. It was Mitch Marner and Miko Rantanen and Matt Barzell and Kyle Connor and Thomas Shabbat and uh, Travis Konechny. And you go down Sebastian Aho, you go down the list, right? So it was a it was a special group even beyond McDavid. Um, this feels that way to me as well. Uh, obviously, you've got Connor Bedard at the top. You've got really four kids after him that look like premium, premium sort of franchise pieces in Will Smith. Uh, Adam Fantilli, Leo Carlson, and Matt Bay Michkov. Michkov is one of the most talented players that I've ever not ranked first overall, uh, wow. which speaks to his level. Um, it's a, but even beyond those five, it's it's a special group. I'd say it's weaker at defense than we're used to. This is actually a below average draft on defense. Okay. There are really only three sort of top end defensemen that are going to be picked in the front half of the first round in this draft. Normally, that number is about double that. Uh, and then even beyond that into the second round and into the late first, there are, there's, it grows in numbers, but it's still probably a few less than, than would typically go in that range. But that part of that is because of how strong it is at forward. I think we're going to see, you're going to see the, the sort of Kyle Connors and the Matt Barzells, the guys who come out of the teens and the twenties who become stars and first line players. I think you're going to see that out of this draft, which isn't, uh, isn't super common. So that piece of it is 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 legit in this draft. It's it's going to be a maybe not historic draft, but sort of a, a upper echelon draft, no question. And and with Mitch Cobb, you, you mentioned it. I, I know a lot of Canadians fans are very split on maybe if he drops a five, would 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 you pick him? 
what do you what do you make of him at, in this draft? And like, do you think teams should basically bite the bullet and and, and take him as high as possible, or how do you kind of see uh, him in this draft? Yeah, I mean, if there were no, if he were Canadian and he didn't have the contract through till twenty twenty six and uh, everything that's happening with the invasion of Ukraine and Russia and the uncertainty there, he'd be the for me the clear cut number two pick. I think he's a the closest in talent to Connor Bedard. Uh, and that's not a knock on Adam Fantilli or Leo Carlson or Will Smith, who I think are tremendous, tremendous prospects. Um, but he's just, he's a cut above in terms of the talent level. There are questions. His game isn't perfect. He's not the super competitive type. He's a little bit on the smaller side, although he's stronger than he looks. Um, he's not a, the fastest skater. He's a winger. So there are little things even beyond Russia and the contract status that complicate taking him as high as his talent should probably warrant. Uh, but in saying that, I mean, he's he, the talent is special. He's for me, the best Russian prospect since 2004 when Alex Ovechkin and Evgeny Malkin went back to back one, two, he's a better prospect than Andrei Svechnikov, who was a number two pick a few years ago and is now a star with Carolina. He's, the real deal, I think he's the kind of player who could post a 100-point season in the prime of his career, and I never say that about non-McDavid, non-Bedard prospects. So uh, that's uh, a testament to, to truly how talented he is. It's, it's still not an easy choice. Teams are, are going to pull their hair out over that one before they make up their minds, I think. But uh, he, when he does, if he does get over here and all goes smoothly, he's going to be a true star talent in the league, I think. And and also with that, I, I want you spoke about he might be the most talented player in the draft other than Bedard. But who do you think? I know a lot of people think Fantilli will go second. Who's maybe the, or I guess second or I guess maybe third best prospect in this draft? And who would you pick at number two? I think it's going to still likely be Fantilli. I do think that these world championships probably unfairly to him have have potentially influenced his his status. He's played kind of a fourth line, 13th forward role. He played one one game uh, up with, with Lawson Kroos and more of a prominent role for this team, Canada. Uh, but to his, sort of to, everybody's going to remember the two assists in seven games, unless through, through they're actually about to play, but unless through to the quarterfinals uh, and into the semis, he has a big tournament. Leo Carlson has looked better, has produced more at this level. So I do think that gap has if there was one has shrunk, there have been teams all year long that have felt that Leo Carlson was a better prospect than Adam Fantilli, but that's, a I do, I, I, it was a minority opinion. I do still think it's a minority opinion. Uh, I think the majority of people still think Fantilli is the better prospect, but it's close. Uh, Leo is a tremendous, tremendous talent. Um, an awesome kid. He blew me away. I did a feature on him and he actually deals with a stutter and he's going to be mm -hmm. entering into the NHL uh, as a stutterer. Uh, which a few players have done before him, but none uh, maybe with a stutter that's as pronounced as his is. Uh, so he's he's a very interesting kid, just a extremely likable kid, uh, wants to sort of, in terms of the stutter, wants to own it and, and sort of be a role model and step in front of the cameras and be confident about it and all of that. So uh, really interesting kid, incredible player, six foot three, talented, all of that. Uh, but I still think Fantilli just the speed that he has, the the sort of competitive edge that he has that maybe a Leo Carlson doesn't quite have. Um, all of that will, will likely tilt it towards Fantilli in terms of going number two to Anaheim.
And and I want to go back a little bit to, to Connor Bedard um, before I let you go, because in your mind, what makes him so special? And I mean, he, he looks like maybe a McDavid or Crosby type, but for you, how comparable is he as a prospect to those guys when they were prospects? Yeah, obviously Crosby, I mean, I've grown up watching him like the rest of us have, but wasn't doing this job when he was drafted. So it's a little trickier. I mean, I watched him at the World Juniors and watched him as a kid. And I remember Gordon Miller's Welcome to the Crosby Show when he scored the mm-hmm. shootout winner against Carey Price and all of that. Um, so I've watched him my whole life. But as far as the McDavid comparison, um, I think McDavid was a better prospect uh, just because of that sort of, we all knew that the skating piece was just going to make him different. We all knew that this was a kid who could be potentially the greatest skater, pure skater in the history of the NHL. And there isn't that quality in terms of that one quality in Bedard that, that stepped him apart that way. I think he, his shot and the way that he shoots it certainly lives is going to live in that upper echelon with the Brett Hulls and the Alex Ovechkins and the Steven Stamkoses and the Austin Matthews and all those guys who've made a career as shooters. Um, but there have been more guys like that than there have been that can skate like McDavid. And I think as a result, he's just going to live a little bit lower in terms of his ceiling. I think McDavid could put up 150 points. I don't think Bedard's ever putting up 150 points in the NHL, right? So, uh, and I think you could see that even when McDavid was a prospect, that this was a kid who was, who was at a different stratosphere. Uh, so I would say he exists more sort of right below that, uh, a better prospect at this stage than, than Matthews and Jack Hughes and those guys were. And Matthews has scored 60 goals. Jack Hughes just hit 99 points. Uh, I think he's going to get there. I think he's going to be a, a hundred point guy, a 50 goal guy. I think he's going to be one of the top 10 scorers in the AHL kind of thing. Um, and he does it as far as how he does it. It's the shot is, I mean, everybody's been talking about that for years, but I think what has made him into the player that he is now is that his game has become about so much more than his unique ability to shoot it. He's now extremely competitive. He's built strong, extremely strong uh, over his feet, kind of that Martin St. Louis, Sidney Crosby, lower body strength. If you see him with the in shorts or whatever, like he's just, you can tell he's uh, extremely fit. Uh, I know from speaking with his offseason coaches that he's been lifting like an NHLer for the last couple of summers. So um, that that piece is there. He's competitive. He's now fiery and chippy out there. He, his, he doesn't just focus on the shot anymore and has used the shot as a tool to set up a lot of his playmaking game and passing the puck and all of that. Uh, I just think he's going to be the complete package offensively. The, really the only question about Bedard that's left for an NHL team to decide is whether he's going to be a center or a winger. I think mm-hmm. he's either going to be a superstar at center or he's going to be a superstar at the wing. There's no, uh, <laughs> It's not a question of upside anymore. It's just a question of where he's going to play. And I think because it's Chicago – and because they have such a blank slate, he's much more likely to be a center there than he would have been had he gone to say uh, Columbus Blue Jackets or even in Anaheim Ducks where they've already got uh, Trevor Zegris and, and Mason McTavish down the middle and, and Ryan Strom is there as well. So there may have been more of an inclination with a team like Anaheim or Columbus that was a little further along in their process to just use him on the wing and shelter him that way. Uh, whereas Chicago, I think they can just stick him at center and is, have him spend a couple of years there and figure it out. Um, so I, I, that's that's really the only question that remains for me with him is is where is he going to play? And I do think at the end of the day, he's going to be a center. 
Well, thank you so much, uh, Scott, for for coming on. And, and before I let you go, I, do you have a Stanley Cup pick? Obviously, the Florida Panthers uh, made the finals last night. Um, Vegas is probably uh, going to go to the finals. So out of those two, who do you like and, and, and maybe why? I, I like Florida in six or seven, but I don't feel great about it. Uh, it just feels like they're the team of destiny at the moment. I think ultimately... The goaltending is is the big question mark in Vegas. Obviously, they've made it this far without it being an issue. They've run through multiple goaltenders along the way. Uh, but it does feel like Bobrovsky has just found father time and sort of rolled back the clock here. And Kachuk is doing Kachuk things. And they just feel like they're a team of destiny right now. Uh, I like the defense certainly more on Vegas. I like their depth a little bit more. Um, but... Ultimately, push comes to shove. I think Kachuk's going to be playing 25. Kachuk and Barkov are going to be playing the majority of the game, right? So uh, the depth does sort of matter a little bit less in those tight games. And then if you're getting good goaltending, you're a tough out in the playoffs. So uh, I, I like I like Florida to cap off the, the Cinderella run here. Awesome. Well, uh, I mean, I, I feel very uh, mixed about it, but uh, I, I definitely uh, I, I, I feel like at a certain point, uh, Florida's run will just end, but honestly, they've been yeah. proving the doubters wrong the whole time. So I, I, I am, I'm definitely probably going to be proven wrong on that, but uh, thanks Scott. I'll just give you the floor. Is there anything at the athletic? I know you mentioned one piece, but that you're working on that you want to plug for the listeners. Yeah, no, just my, my draft board's the big one. My final top 100 will be out June 5th. So a couple of weeks, less than a little less than a couple of weeks from now, it's already done. It's been submitted. It's going through the editing and formatting and design process and all that. So uh, yeah, really looking forward to sharing that with the world because that's my biggest, uh, my biggest project of every, every hockey season here. Well, thank you so much, Scott. I, I look forward to to reading it and I'm, I hope uh, I wish you good luck at your Super Bowl uh, next month and in Nashville at the at at the NHL draft. So best of luck, and I hope uh, you have a great time there and uh, a good uh, next month leading up to it. Yeah, thank you. Nashville's one of the uh, there's only six or seven NHL markets I haven't been to yet. Nashville's oh. one of them, so I've heard I've heard great things, and I'm looking forward to looking forward to getting down there and capping it off, and then uh, and we get to talk about Macklin Celebrini and the 2024 kids <laughs> a couple of days later. So Yeah, no, your 2024 mock draft comes out the day after, I'm, I'm guessing, so that's, <laughs> that's probably what happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much, Scott, and uh, definitely look forward to to reading all your stuff, and uh, I'm hoping my uh, sends maybe sneak in and trade to Brinkett, and I can uh, be more engaged about it, maybe a top 10 pick in this draft, but uh uh, thanks so much, Scott, for, for taking the time and uh, coming on. Yeah, thanks, Alex.